0: Welcome to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of the Catholic Channel on SiriusXM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to SiriusXM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Catholic Channel, SiriusXM 129. Welcome back. You're listening to America This Week. I am Carrie Weber, Executive Editor for America, and I am joined by Father Matt Malone, our editor in chief, and Olga Segura. Our associate editor. We have an article by Juleka Lantigua Williams, and this piece is called "Why More Data Is Needed When Reporting on Latinos in the Criminal Justice System." And Juleka Lantigua Williams is the founder and chief executive officer of Lantigua Williams and Company, uh, which is an audio and film production company in DC. And previously, she was staff writer at The Atlantic. She was lead editor and producer for NPR's Code Switch, Uh, and we are really excited to have her in our pages and. Uh, on our site. So, Juleka, welcome to the show.
1: Hi. How are you?
0: We're well. Thank you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for inviting me. I think this is my first time on non-terrestrial radio. Very (laughs) exciting
2: stuff happening. I know. It's very exciting. We're drinking Tang (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> 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 Are you literally out in space? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. how you guys do it. you Shot out into the cosmos. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, we should work on that. Can we have space ice cream in yeah, the future? Yeah, I think it's All a right. great idea. Yeah. <laughs> Astronaut ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Isn't that dipping <coughs> dots? Isn't that like the
2: ice cream? <laughs> yeah. I think that is it. Yeah. No, yeah,
0: yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. So let's, let's talk more is about dipping dots. Start. I love this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so and you have this piece, right? So can, maybe we can start with looking for a, a brief answer to the question posed in, in the headline why more data is needed when reporting on Latinos in the criminal justice system? Is there, uh, where, where is there a lack of this data, and what, what would be gained by, by learning more? Okay,
1: so there's a massive lack of data. (laughs) So um, unfortunately, criminal justice statistics, uh, the bulk of which are kept and processed in a deep, dark vault somewhere in the government, Um, (laughs) they are not disaggregated. So what happens is that for ethnic efficiency's sake, um, and because it's so much easier to deal with broader categories, they generally get broken down into the four major racial groups in the United States. So white, black, Asian, Latino, and occasionally depending on the state, uh, if there is a considerable enough Native American population, you might get some data on uh, on the Native American population. And so that in itself is problematic, right, because it basically generalizes to such a large extent that the data becomes meaningless, right? Throwing out numbers like, you know, X percentage of the person population is Black or Latino or Asian is not really that valuable in getting to solutions, right? Because what we really need to look at is how are they being funneled into The system that creates these racial disparities in the population right Um, where are the administrative roadblocks or delays in administering justice that result in these racial disparities right and so the reason why utilizing more Latinos or more african-americans or more Asian Americans to look into these issues is that generally speaking they have spent a career immersed in reporting, studying, writing about, investigating, researching, documenting, and actually interviewing the population so that it is no longer sort of like possible for someone who has that much knowledge to simply say with a broad swat, and this is the percentage. Now, this person is going to say, well, if you look at it intergenerationally, we've got this percentage of immigrants who end up going through the local jail. Then we've got this percentage of first generation. Then we've got this percentage of people who are from Spanish-speaking or Spanish-dominant countries. And then we've got this other population that's from the Caribbean. And then if we desegregate it further, we've got this smaller population of Afro-Latinos, for example, right? So, like, they could be from Honduras. They could be from Venezuela. They could be from the Dominican Republic, from Cuba. And the reasons that each of these types of Latinos ends up is sometimes very different. And it has to do with many things, right? It has to do with country of origin and what the cultural and national relationship is to justice right? It also has to do with geography. Where did they immigrate to? Or where did they end up after the second or third generation? Um, You know, because there's a lot of mobility from, for example, the clusters in New York and New Jersey down to Florida. And now there's a massive exodus coming in from the island of Puerto Rico. So all of these factors have to be taken into account for any meaningful understanding of how to dismantle this this behemoth that we call the criminal justice system. And it's not one system. I mean, this is the thing that we have to talk about. It is not one system. It is a multiplicity of systems because what most people don't understand is that we have a multi-tier. So we've got the local jail Then we've got the county jail, then we've got state prisons, then we've got federal prisons, and then we have a bunch of other ancillary um, institutions, many of them privatized, that are also complementary to the criminal justice systems that are in place in the country. So it's it's a massive web.
2: And it also seems to me that, uh, that there's a huge population that is in the criminal justice system but not in an institution. I mean, a, 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 a huge Absolutely number right. of people in the criminal justice system are, are on probation or on parole, right?
1: Absolutely right. And so this is the other p- part of the criminal justice system, right? So we know that there's about 2.2 million people overall in, in physically in being, you know, in uh, the custody of a state, local, or federal authority. However... There are 70 million American adults over the age of 18 today walking around with criminal records. Wow. Right? So in all likelihood you work with someone who has a criminal record you definitely go to church with people who have criminal records your children probably go to on playdates or to birthday parties of people who have a criminal record and it's not necessarily for big offenses or you know crimes that, that require long sentences the bulk of people go for you know, go in, into jail or end up having a criminal record for minor offenses, nonviolent offenses. And so we have to start looking at what is it that creates a system that now has permeated tens of millions of people's lives. And so the, the other thing that's happening now is that in the push to utilize and maximize technology we are expanding the definition of being in custody. So one of the very tangible examples is the monitoring bracelets, right? You've got countless of people in the United States today who are being electronically monitored 24 hours a day and who are forbidden from from entering certain spaces and who are forbidden from being out past certain times of the day and night. So this is also just an expansion of the jailing system. And so, you know, you've got probation periods that last 15 years in which a person has to check in with a probation officer every week, every month. That's also part of remaining in the uh, in the criminal justice system, not to mention the, the lingering impact of essentially having been removed from the working economy and from your earnings for a decade, two decades, and then having to rebuild your life, and then having that record show up every single time you go for a job interview. So a lot of states like California um, are doing away with um, what's called the box, right? So they're they're, removing the box um, from any applications to work with the government in California so that your prior history is not being considered unless – There is a particular job that you're going for in which it is specifically stated that people with a a criminal record may may not apply. Right. And Mm -hmm. the box is is you
0: would check yes or no, right? The question is yes, you would check yes or no, but it's considered
1: an offense if you have a criminal record not to disclose that. Right. Do you know what I mean? So it's a double bind, right? And then the other problem is that, you know, there are. Today, on the books, there are about 28,000 licenses and job qualifications that forbid people with criminal records from even applying to get the license. Something simple like a beautician, like a barber, like an orderly at a hospital. You know, like, to me, it seems unconscionable that we would have 28,000. And this is in the books uh, throughout the 50 states where people are from jump, Forbidden from even asking to apply for this job. It's, it's insane, it's absolutely insane. You write
0: about the fact that there are not really any significant sociological studies on how certain cultural norms prevent or contribute to Latinos ending up in the criminal justice system. But as you mentioned at the top of the show, there's a real diversity uh, among Latino populations, right? So there might even be multiple forces at work here. Uh, and. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about some of the forces that you see that are exerting pressure for good or for bad uh, on, on the Latino population and its relationship with the criminal justice
1: system. absolutely I'm I'm happy to Um, and you know this is again I'm I'm not taking the mic and speaking on behalf of all Latinos it's always good to say that but I have been writing about Latinos my entire career some 18 years and then for the last couple of years I've focused specifically on writing about criminal justice and so you know when I talk about these trends um, and, and these are you know observations that I've made based on data so a couple of things come in come into play here. So one is country of origin, right? So Latin America has 26 countries, I believe, and then there's three Spanish-speaking countries in the Caribbean. So each of those countries has not only a separate history uh, not only different types of governments but it also has a very culturally relevant and culturally determined relationship to the rule of law so the rule of law in a place like chile um, where there were dictatorships, where people were disappeared, where there was a lot of repression of human rights, is probably going to be different, you know, than in a place like Colombia, where cartels, you know, basically ran the country for three decades, where there are still kidnappings, where the elite ruling classes have maintained a stronghold on the economy, right? And so you've got to look at the country of origin very specifically to understand. Uh, how these uh, legacies influence uh, people who are not even just new arrivals, but who, whose parents and grandparents came over. Many, you know, of the early Latin Americans who came over to the U.S. Uh, were exiles, intellectual exiles and political exiles from places like Chile and, and Cuba, you know, and Dominican Republic. A lot of them came running uh, for their lives, literally. So, that That's one one influence. The other thing that you have to look at is the economic segment segmentation that happens by um, diasporic cohorts, right? So that, what you know in the eighties, seventies, and eighties, and early nineties, people used to come from their home countries and just go to somewhere where they had a cousin, or an aunt, or a former neighbor. They used to congregate in the same areas, and so what would happen is that these so-called ethnic enclaves, and that was a popular term a couple of decades ago, so these ethnic enclaves would begin to suffer some of the same socio-economic indifference at the hands of um, Authorities, as many quote unquote ghettoized populations before them did. So, you know, the the Italians uh, suffered it in the Lower East Side, in New York City, where, you know, the public services that were offered to them, including policing and fire department and sanitation, were the absolute lowest possible. Uh, African Americans have suffered this, still suffer this, throughout the United States, especially in the Delta, especially in rural areas. And Latinos, as a consequence of the way that they chose to maintain their ethnic unity when they left their home countries, also came to suffer that. And so they tended to live in places where the police wouldn't enter. I grew up in one of those places in the South Bronx, in New York City in the 80s, you know And your best protection was your church, basically back then. And you, people with younger children like my parents, would walk us to school and pick us up, walk us to church and walk us back. You know, I joke now as an adult that I basically didn't know that I was living in a Bermuda triangle, where if I didn't go home or to school or to church, I might disappear along the way. And so it was because the crack epidemic was there, police wouldn't enter, Uh, in other places like in Los Angeles there was a lot of gang activity, police wouldn't enter, and so again, over a decade, over 15 years, over 20 or 30 years, the community learns to mistrust the police, right? And you don't have to go that far. Uh, in Milwaukee, there was a study that I wrote about two two years ago. And um, there was, you know, police, uh, some police chief, after um, Ferguson became part of the national conversation, said that there was some something he termed the Ferguson effect. And in his understanding, the Ferguson effect worked like this. So after Ferguson, after the death of, of, of Mike Brown at the hands of a police officer um, in broad day, daylight, right, So and Ferguson sort of erupted in protest, uh, this police chief said that this, the message that was sent out to know other hard-working police officers around the country was that it was not safe to go into these predominantly black communities when there was unrest and so in his you know in his imagination in his understanding he believed that um, the more people demonstrated against you know police brutality the more likelihood there would be that police would stop going into these places so two academics um, you can find the article in the atlantic i don't want to you know give any wrong information but two academics uh, from northeast institutions paired up and said okay well let's test this theory right let's test this theory and use you know math <laughs> and statistics and you know just use hard data to see if this actually plays out and they went to a place that had been um, experiencing some eruptions also due to um the death of young black men at the hands of police and so, sorry about that. That was my other phone. So they went to Milwaukee, and this is what they did in Milwaukee. Yes. They looked at at the death of a very prominent, well-reported death of an African-American man at the hands of police, and they said to themselves, let's look at 911 calls a year prior to his death and a year after his death, 365 days in either direction. And what they found was that unlike what that police chief had espoused about the fear that unrest um, brought upon a police officer they found the opposite what they found was that as long as a year sometimes as long as 15 months after the death of an african-american man at the hands of police calls to 911 dropped dramatically because people became fearful that if they called 911, even when they themselves were in danger, someone could end up dead at the hands of police. And, and was that drop
2: among like African Americans or across the general population?
1: Among African Americans and yeah. communities of color, but also among some white communities, the poorer, uh, more economically disenfranchised communities. And so as many gotcha. as 24,000 911 calls were not made between so like if you look at the year prior, so let's say I think it was in January that the incident happened. So from the January that the incident happened into the previous one, let's say there were a hundred thousand calls to nine one one. Well from the day it happened to a year after there was a drop of twenty four thousand calls. Wow. Because these communities thought if I report what's happening, someone I know, my neighbor, might end up dead if we call the police so the ferguson effect turned out to be complete nonsense because it wasn't that police were afraid of going to these communities it was that the communities were afraid to call the police into their communities you know and so these are the kinds of things that we need to look at same thing happens in latino communities like we don't want to put someone at harm's risk even if we know that it could end up protecting us you know right so it's, it's just really complicated. Yeah. It's just very complicated, and which is do why like we a, need people one of the things who are that trusted y- in these communities to go in and have these these very difficult conversations. Right, right. One of the things that you get into that is very specific to the numbers, the 33% of the prison population that is Latino, is the effect of ICE. So can you talk a little bit about how ICE contributes to these numbers? Hi, Olga. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Juleka. Juleka has been a guest on
0: our Jesuitical podcast, as as mentioned previously. So Olga and Juleka have had previous conversations. (laughs) Olga's one of my favorite people. Sorry, I
1: kind of have a girl crush on her. (laughs) Um, Thank you. What was the question? What? You Can't were you, you were so
2: overtaken <laughs> by the melodious tones <laughs> I of her voice. Really so, <laughs> <quite laughs> the question um, was okay, the effect so. of
1: ICE on the yeah. numbers of Latinos Ice. in prison.
2: Yeah, and we have about three yeah. minutes.
1: Oh wow, okay, you guys know I'm long-winded. <laughs> 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 okay, um, I'll try to make this short. So, this is what's going on with with ICE right now. So. ICE, so there's a, is there's a, uh, not aware of this, there's a national movement toward decarceration, right? There's a national understanding that the way we've done incarceration has come, completely backfired. It has not the, you know, rehabilitation effect that we wanted it to have. However, we built a massive industry, right, and a massive, you know, alternate economy based on incarcerating people. And so what are we going to do with all of these millions of jobs and all of the shareholders who, you know, expect to have their returns because they put money in to build more and more jails? And here comes ICE. So um, the current administration set a goal about a year ago of keeping uh, something like 40,000 people on, on average, on a daily average, in, uh, in custody. And all of these people would be basically funneled into the system by ICE right, which is the Immigration um, Enforcement Agency. And so what's happening now is that there's a turnover. So instead of having quote-unquote criminals or people who have committed crimes occupy the beds in local and county jails, ICE is now renting out those jails. And now that's causing major friction in so-called sanctuary cities like San Francisco and New York, where the city governments have determined that they're not going to turn over any information on undocumented people to ICE so the ICE can then do their enforcement. And so Latinos principally are getting caught up in this. And down along the Southwest, it is becoming really problematic because, you know, uh, down in places like Texas and Mississippi and Arizona, a lot of the local economies are anchored on a jail or a state prison, right? right? And so there is a, a push and pull that's happening now because we have – literally tied the well-being, the economic well-being of some of these, of so many communities around the country to a corrupt and dysfunctioning um, criminal justice system. Right. And Latinos are definitely getting caught up in that system more and more because we represent a large swath of undocumented people, of the 11 million undocumented people in the United States.
2: And it, it, it you know, from the point of view of Catholic social teaching, it's, uh, you, you can't build and promote the common good uh, when, when you have that... Kind of operation at the center of your economy and of your of your, of your community. It, 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 it's yeah.
1: antithetical.
2: Right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, the piece yeah. is uh, why more data is needed when reporting on Latinos in the criminal justice system by Jaleka Lantiqua Williams. Thank you so much for being with us.
1: Oh my God, this was so much fun. Thank we got to you. have you back. <laughs> oh,
2: you totally will,
1: and have all that because you know <laughs> <I hope laughs>
2: to have around. <laughs> all right. Fair enough. Thanks so much for being with us. All right. Bye. That is, I mean, that's really fascinating stuff. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. Well, and, that, and the thing is, it's fascinating even without all the numbers that she wants, right, right? right? Like imagine if she actually, and we had the data that we needed to really delve into a lot of the issues that she talks about at a community level, at a country level, a uh, country of origin level, it would be even more uh, in, incisive, I think.
2: Yeah, I think that that's right. Um, I just want to say before we close, uh, Carrie, we're going to be praying for you. For you and your family, thank you very much. And uh, we hope all for the best. And we hope to be celebrating with you soon.
0: I hope to, I hope to be celebrating. We're
2: really happy for you. And then we'll see you back here or hear you back here on the broadcast (laughs) in a few months. Um, Yeah, I can bring (laughs) the baby, right? That's no problem. Of course you can. (laughs) No, we're pro-life, pro-family. Babies babies are great for radio. That's exactly right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have been listening to America this week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You can find all of the content that we talked about today uh, at americamagazine.org forward slash Sirius. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. And to subscribe to America, please call 1-800-627-9533. That's 1-800-627-9533 for a smart Catholic take on faith and culture. For Kerry Weber and Olga Segura, I'm Father Matt Malone. Thank you and good day.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast of America This Week, courtesy of The Catholic Channel on SiriusXM 129. If you want to listen to more, subscribe to SiriusXM and tune in on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern on The Catholic Channel, SiriusXM 129.